Follow the Drinking Gourd was an anthem of the Underground Railroad in southern slave states of the USA. As popular legend has it, the lyrics contain instructions to guide people escaping slavery towards northern free states, delivered in a coded form their captors could not understand. It tells the listener to follow the pole star, studded in a gourd-shaped constellation more commonly known as the Big Dipper, tracing the footsteps of a man called Pegleg Joe, a legendary figure of the Underground Railroad. Many people have thrown doubt on the authenticity of the song, suggesting that it may be more a figment of legend than a solid fact. But whether true, false, or somewhere in between, the song has been used down the decades as a symbol of the very real history of resistance and rebellion by people trapped on the edge of despair. When the sun comes back and the first quail calls, follow the drinking gourd. For the old man is waiting to carry you to freedom if you follow the drinking gourd. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask poets to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations, stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. Joining me are Stuart Buck, Geraldine Clarkson and Sabrina Mafuz. Just to note that this episode may contain adult themes and strong language, so listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and without further ado, welcome everyone. Hello. It is great to have you here. So imagine we are at the end of the world. Apocalypse has hit and hit hard. We are gathered around the burning car, the burning trash can to share happy stories of the world before the world to come, etc. Why are we doing that? What's the point of telling stories like this? Sabrina? I guess at that point there'd be like no TV. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what you got to do. Um, I mean, that sounds... Silly, but it's true. Like stories, obviously, give people a reason to be together and to listen to what each other have to say. We might be sitting around the fire to tell stories, but maybe they're just stories that are so bad it makes the apocalypse not seem so bad. It's solidarity among thieves, that kind of thing. Like it could be so much worse. We have this burning trash can, after all. We have warmth, (laughs) at least. Exactly. What do you think? I think, well, I mean, for me, stories are escapism and I can't think of uh, a situation I'd rather escape from than the end of the world, you know. So, uh, I mean, I I read I read stories and novels and and poetry to to, to sort of forget who I am for a little bit. And, you know, I think that that, that's what stories do. They take you somewhere else and they they transport you with words, maybe outside the situation that you're in, you know which is why they're so important. So that old adage, write what you know, has been lying to us this whole time. Yeah, write what you think you'd like to know. I think that's better. <laughs> what do you think, Geraldine? I think that they, whether they're escapist or happy or sad, they um, impose a kind of order on reality and that can be satisfying or comforting because they draw something out of the chaos just by the fact that they've been put together as a story and that's perhaps a service that art can, can render. So even if the pattern is tragic yeah, or it's devastating, it's a pattern. It's satisfying because it's a pattern. Sabrina, how about you kick off the proceedings and tell us about the story that you've chosen? Sure. Um, so my story is um, a sort of interpretation of the myth of Prometheus, um, which is an ancient Greek myth about um, a demigod from the Titans who... Um, 
is most famous for giving humans fire, but um, less known for all the other things, which is basically everything. Um, arts, reason, um, yeah, with the, the, yeah, so many things, but it started off with fire. Um, and I did classics at uni, so um, Prometheus Bound by Aeschylus was my favourite um, play, but it's not very often done because it's the least dramatic in the way that Prometheus is chained to a rock the whole time, so <laughs> there's not really that much he can do. But he has lots of visitors who come and ask him, why did you do what you did? And um, he explains and defends his decisions and questions his decisions. And then he's being given an opportunity to be released from the rock if he gives Zeus this particular information that only he could know. Um, but ultimately, he chooses not to do that. Um, so I think there's lots of really interesting things that the play does explore. Um, and I would love to do a version of it as a play one day. Um, but currently, I have done it as a short poem for <laughs> the end of the world. <laughs> just in case you don't get time before the apocalypse hits, good to like just have this unlock. Exactly. <laughs> um, great, take it away. Prometheus, woman. In this prison they have pigeons to peck my toes every night. Budget. Blanket me with crumbs every evening, 7pm, lights out. Baby. Pigeons cooped, starved, they swoop. I convulse all crumbs down my torso to fall at my shackled feet. Blossom. Guards know what I did. You do too. Do you? Likely agree a place like this exists for people like me to learn a lesson. Lines. My little toe pecked to the bone. But I have his face to recall. An aesthetic image of that shock, horror, joy when he saw what I held. Light. I could have said no. No fire for all you waste men out there wishing to burn yourselves to brilliance. I'll keep it in me where it has glown centuries, peacefully. But I am no V-sign. Listen. Tears spared for the children always, but not you. I knew. Your life was not worth the years of shivering. You'd do anything to keep this warmth to yourself, for crisp meat to melt, for wolves to whimper. Oceans, take us to the edges of everything. Your throat unthawed now by my heat. You shout as if you're vomiting a riverbed. You kill things you have never seen. Oscillate. I knew you would push the flames. Firstly, send their tips unwillingly, but then realise all they ever needed was the slightest promise and off they'd surge. Opine. And now look at the havoc, look at the hubris, look at the horror, look at the hell, look at the fucking hassle you've caused for us all. Pigeons may peck at me for what I knew, for giving it to you when I knew, I knew. But who will carve you up for what you've done? Whale. Woe. Pathetic practicalities, you sat them down in delusion, as if this is invention, as if this is progress. Did you never slice a stone in half? What use are toes when there is no water left to wash them in, you imbeciles? You believe you did the best you could with a gift that came unboxed with no instructions, no receipt. The best you could do would have been to retreat, to admit this was way beyond your pay grade, to say, you know what, these flames are hot, they're fucking hot as fuck and I'd love to fuck with them, but I won't because I haven't got a clue what I'm doing, I mean generally. So you keep them, you keep them and let us know when you think we're ready. And then I'd have thought maybe you were worth saving after all. I'd have done exactly that, let you grow a bit more, develop those blunt skills unsharpened by the 
the luxury of warmth or light. And I'd have decided when the time was right. Don't you get it? Yeah, it wasn't my decision to make. You stood there and asked and you were kind with your eyes half closed. And I'm a bad bitch, but I fell for it. I thought maybe this is it, our turn to set the world alight. And what do I know anyway? I've only ever been a half god. Nobody tells a half god anything. Sitting on the outskirts of all the circles. Don't you think I made my own shapes? You think you created them? Are you out of your mind? Of course you are. Inhaled too much smoke, exhaled no ego, and now you think, I know who to hold here for eternity to be nibbled at, but you forget, you mortals forget, there is no eternity because you have fucking burnt it. Even Olympus is flammable, and I was not at the AGM, which mentioned what happens when eternity is over, so you can sit me here as birdseed for however many small years we have left, but I have nothing left to give you. I have nothing left to give you, man. That was amazing, thank you. Why did you make Prometheus a woman? Um, well, I kind of feel like you just have to make everyone a woman who wasn't a woman originally <laughs> because, like, yeah, with you, I mean, anyone generally, but especially when you spend a certain significant time of your life studying so much literature that always had male protagonists, mm-hmm. um, it feels like a real blessing and luxury to well, not luxury, a blessing, to be living in a time where um, actually just changing those characters to be women is encouraged and is welcome and is possible because honestly, when I was at university and used to like question, even question, like, why do you think it would have been a man? Don't you really think that somebody giving fire and everything to do with human life would would have been a, a, a female god? Like they had loads of female gods for like war and stuff. Yeah. It's strange that this was a choice um, of a male god, and it was it was always sort of a like oh here she goes again kind of thing. <laughs> so it, I always feel like if if I can change a male character into a female one, then I will do so. Um, and and I also feel that that kind of gift of fire, that gift, supposed gift of life, and then how that can be used for good or bad, um, sort of feels more as if um, it's something that w- women give. What do you think this story says about other people that we condemn and punish? I work a lot in prisons, um, all prisons, but women's prisons in particular. Um, so there's something quite fascinating to me about the fact that um, the original Prometheus is chained to a rock um, for doing something that other people would imagine is quite nice or <laughs> um, being done without necessarily their own... Um, benefit being the primary objective within what they've done and so I think with women in prison uh, in my experience the majority of them have done something which has been done in order to not actually benefit them Mm. primarily so I think that the incarceration of women um, in the justice system as it stands is highly problematic Um, and yeah so that kind of again just felt like a natural place to to put this Prometheus um, in a prison in which everybody who works within it kind of just has to fall into line of, well, of course you belong here because you've done something that everybody says makes you belong here. But Mm. actually, what is that? And why are we not questioning that more? Yeah, like we're punishing you, so of course you must have done something wrong. (laughs) Just through the act of punishment is the, the proven guilt of the situation. 
um, even though everybody knows that the courts and the justice system do not always make the right decisions. What do you think, Geraldine? I think it's a fantastic myth. I really loved it. And it seems so natural for Prometheus to be a woman. I uh, I love the fact that um, the eagle has become pigeons in the budget version. And it's so extreme. There, is there a line, um, take me to the edges of everything? It seems that you push everything as far as, as, far as it can go. Um, it's interesting that the um, aspect of humiliation is often associated more with a woman than a man. Prometheus is, was the one who was humiliated, but it seems to be very natural for the woman to be humiliated. And she reaches a point at the end of like, total abjection and all-consumingness. Um, there's a, um, a spiritual quality called kenosis, which is um, letting go of the divine. And Prometheus was half God, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. So... Um, um, it seems like she lets go and empties herself at the end, um, which seems very powerful and so many powerful elements. Mm, I love it. Stuart? Yeah, um, um, firstly, that was amazing. Um, but I, I felt a lot of anger in the piece and I just wanted to know, with you switching it up uh, from from the male protagonist to a female, it, it the, the myth became a lot more expansive, I think. When I read the myth of Prometheus, it was just about a guy who was chained to a rock, you know, and, and, and now you've turned it into a, a, a woman who was chained to a rock, you know, you can, you can see all these different layers coming out in the myth, which I think is really, really good. But what, what I want to know is, were you quite angry when you wrote it? <laughs> and did you feel... Did you feel it was. Did you feel it, e- it was easy to instil anger into the piece once you switched it to a female protagonist? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I don't think uh, I'm always angry <laughs> when I write. I mean, I think that unless if I can't push a piece of writing to a place of anger, however that comes out, I'll probably leave it because. Um, well, it depends because I write in different forms. It's different for like a film or a TV script. I can't, I can't do that with. So if it's theatre or it's poetry or it's anything sort of more live performance based like that, then the thrill of that medium for me is to be able to write to a point of anger and to revel in that anger and, and to just, as Geraldine said, kind of take it to the extremes of where you want to take it on that kind of day and I can't remember exactly what I'd been reading or looking at when I when I wrote this aside from the myth but yeah <laughs> it was it, whatever that was I and mean, it was no doubt something um about women in prison or like women uh maybe also the sort of situation with again has a resonance with what Geraldine had written about with the child separation issues and not just in America I mean worldwide it's just that America gets more of the spotlight but that's obviously happening all over the place um and yeah so I was putting all of that in into there yeah because it it it, it seemed almost musical um and I was just wondering how how easy it was to write um because it seems like it went from the the head to the pen to the paper yeah I do that a lot (laughs) head to pen to paper um and I think it's quite interesting for um for me to explore writing as something that can be that um I'm quite defensive of the fact that that should be allowed and that that's okay and I'm not searching for perfection ever in anything in life but definitely not in writing I'm quite a fan of being like this is just what it is right now and 
that's fine because that has just come from my brain to my pen to my paper and that is um that's not to take away from obviously the more um time consuming ways of writing and you know I know loads of writers who I love who will spend days and days and days on one line and their lines are amazing and that's fine but that's just not I've never been able to to work like that it's not it's not what excites me or propels me to actually finish something or even start something so it has to be quite head to pen to paper for me and then um, rather than edit that as a as a piece I would probably then like start to change it into something else so oh let's make this a play now <laughs> or you know rather than like let's just make this a perfect poem because I know it will never be that so I'll just like change its form um, but yeah I think because I'd spent such a long time with the myth itself as a as something that I loved it wasn't something that I just came to for this um, it it was easier than if it was something I'd just chosen because I'd sort of been wondering about how to work with it for a long time. Stuart can you tell us what story you've chosen? Yeah I chose um, uh, a folk a folktale called Lob Lie by the Fire uh, or the Lubber Fiend um, and it's it's a very basic folktale about uh, a guy who comes into your house at night does little chores for you cleans up does the dishes and then you leave him a saucer of milk and he falls asleep by the fire wakes up before you, and then leaves again. Can I get one? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit like um, 16th century Santa Claus, you know, in the, but you don't leave him milk and cookies, you just leave him milk. Um, Bargain. And he just wants to help. That's all That's all he wants to do, and I just thought the positivity of it, you know, you get so that you, so many myths and folktales that are so um, um, sad and negative, like we were talking about, you know, and, and this one is just a guy who just wants to help everyone, you know, it's lovely. <laughs> But the other reason I chose it um, is because it's it's such a bare bones story that there's almost nothing known about it at all. Um, John Milton uh, mentioned it once in a book, uh, and apart from that, and a few references to a a, a folktale called what he's called Hob, which is the the Irish version of it, which I, I think is where hobgoblin comes from. But um, it, Lob is almost unknown, and and when I write, I, I I love the idea of being able to build on that sort of bare carcass and and push my own idea onto it, you know? Great, so let's see what you've got. This poem is called Lover, Fiend. The first time he comes to me, I am weeping deep, hard tears. The night is a soft, slow murder of snow and burnt orange from the streetlight outside. Sitting by an electric heater in nothing but a torn skirt, I am shame, I am shame, I am shame. I am an anachronism in stolen underwear and steel toe-cap boots. I am the video of the sunset that we set to repeat at 50 times the speed so that it looks like the world is ending over and over and over again. That night my skin breaks for the first time, two patches on my shoulders, a pen nib of wet bone peeking through each spot. As I close my eyes he holds me, tears like aloe ease the burning of my blades. The second night he visits me, I am drunk, exhausted on the floor. Outside, the world is moving in late-night monochrome. I am a time-lapse of masked men burning the beak tips off newborn poultry so that they do not eat each other alive. I am an underground cinema in Berlin where they only show Marx Brothers films, and in some dark corner, a masked man is agreeing to do something he will regret in the cold, harsh morning. As I lie on the floor, the bones jostle from my shoulders, it is an itch I have been waiting to scratch since time began. 
He bundles me into strong, loving arms. Nothing is okay, but that in itself is beautiful. I should be in pain, but the pain is not there. I lick my lips and find only his saliva, a patina of understanding. When Lob comes to me a third time, I have wings. Not great leathery sails, but the awkward pointed elbows of a Mesozoic bird. I'm a freshly chewed piece of gum placed softly on my tongue by my crush in an action they will never appreciate the seismic quality of. I am that ache that begins behind the eyes and travels down the side of the throat to the gut, like hunger but more acidic. I am the bitterness felt on the tip of the tongue when it's placed in the ear of someone who sleeps, then the tears. The sweet balm that runs down his face that soothes the donut-shaped marks where the wings shift through. At times it feels like I am sprouting, a rare herb, a ghost orchid, a thirsty purple crocus signalling the start of spring. My bones crack and splinter, pushed aside to make way for some beautiful agony. The fourth night we make love, my vast wings wrap around his naked frame, casting us together in a cocoon of hot pink silk. I am the crescendo of Beethoven's fifth, something marvellous and frightening at the same time. I am the soft, strange afterglow that cushions the hearing of those present. I am gendered, negated. I am who I need to be, the divine cock and balls, a weeping statue, fluid and sacred. I am a rose caught in the rain, my head bowing ever lower as the water pelts my frame. Eventually my petals meet the dirt of the ground to mingle with the sin of the clay. I spin on a potter's wheel. Rough hands squeeze and shape me. I become a sculpture of a bird, all slip and solder. I am the paint, the canvas and the brush, every part of a masterpiece. Lob stares at me with pale green eyes. I part my lips and lie by the fire. So why did you stage the story of Lob as a love story? Well, um, I, I liked the idea that, that he, he was a he was a friendly guy that that came in every night, you know, and, and, and helped you out. And I liked the idea of, of 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 someone who needed that help, you know. And um when I when I when I read what little there was on Lob, I automatically went to uh, well, automatically went to Rocky Horror. And Rocky from Rocky Horror, the sort of Adonis, you know, and I think I think in the original myth, he's he's sort of he's sort of quite a big, you know, he reminds me a bit of a Hobbit. He's got probably got hairy feet, and I wanted to, because I wanted to address uh, gender and love and and sexuality. I wanted to make him the the sort of the alpha male, as it were, you know, and um, I I think a lot a lot a lot of what I write. Our love stories, anyway, really just just quite twisted love stories. And like I said, there was it was so sparse the information that I just thought I wrote something, and I wanted him to be there, but I didn't want him to be the main character. I wanted the focus to be on the protagonist and what he was going through, you know. So tell us about the protagonist. Well, the protagonist, I wrote it in the first person, um, but the protagonist could really be anyone. Um, anyone, anyone. The, the 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 thing with Lob is he goes where he's needed, you know. And I think that nowadays a lot of people need someone like that to help them out and to to sort of maybe straighten up the house or you know the way that I wrote it. The house was just a metaphor for the confusion that that he felt or that I felt 
in terms of his sexuality, you know, and in terms of his gender constructs, and maybe there's people going through. There's less people nowadays that need a clean house and more people that need a clean mind, you know, and I wanted to make him someone that could help in that way. Like, what does what is the necessity of yeah, caring? Yeah, and, and I, li- I liked this idea that he was still here in the modern world just looking for someone to help, you know, and, and rather than doing the dishes, he's he's helping this, the, the you know, the, the main character in the poem, he's helping him work out who he is um, and work out what he wants to be. It's so interesting that you say that, um, which is a fascinating way into it, but I was actually thinking um, because, um, yeah, having having a kid and trying to be a full-time freelancer and all that stuff, I was thinking that actually the only way that my brain would be clear enough to actually start to negotiate things like that would be through the domestic chores being done. So I started thinking of that the character you'd created of, as Lob was potentially somebody who was actually still doing all those chores, but it's through that cleanliness of home has allowed the protagonist to go to those places yeah. um, in their mind, um, which either way is the same as what you were saying, but it's just a different way of uh, getting yeah. into it. I think I, I come from a, pl- a place where, where I'm, I'm often confused uh, about everything, really, uh, in the modern world. But um, sort of gen- gender and sexuality is something that I really struggle with, and I-, I I just loved the idea that he he could he could help you in in any way that he could. This guy needed this kind of help. Another person might need another kind of. I mean, it, maybe if you leave a saucer of milk out, he might come and you know, <laughs> help you out. As long as he likes non dairy milk. Yeah, 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 soy, yeah soy milk. Well, that's we very that, 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 that's very twenty first century uh, <laughs> a, a, a sort of a vegan. Vegan lob. Yeah, Yeah, vegan lob, yeah, exactly, yeah. That myth made me cry. I found it so tender and moving, real connection. I love the idea that um, lob is the catalyst that enables the eye to to become what the eye has to be. And I love the way that... um, the traditional lob lie by the fire. The um, the fire comes through all the imagery really subtly and really persistently through the um, as the the sun sets and um, a hot pink. It's all very subtle, but there, there's there's fire all the way through. The electric heater is the first one. Often when I write, I, I write vignettes. So I write. Um, I I just get one image in my head, and then I then I I write from that. And the the first image that came to me was. The, the the protagonist slumped by on the floor by the electric fire, which went back to the original, but it but is also um, so I've always got to think about electric fires. I think they're very sort of strangely romantic, you know, especially the old bar ones, um, and that was the image that I took, and then I I, I, I I went from there, and obviously he goes through a physical transformation as well as a a, a mental transformation, and I I think that um. I wanted to show a, a confusion in in each in each night. There's there's confusion. There's there's a series of jumbled images, which is what I think life is anyway. You know, to a lot of people. But I wanted the story to be there as well, the physical and the mental transformation. So tell us about the wings. Is the eye character becoming an angel, becoming a bird? What's going on there? He's becoming a bird. Mm-hmm. So. Um, there is a, I, I don't know if you know, there is an album by a, a, a guy called Anthony and the Johnsons and it's called I Am A Bird Now and it, it's all about his transformation um, in terms of uh, his gender and he he, 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 um, he he writes a lot about 
um, gender fluidity, and um, I wanted him, like I said before, I wanted him to go through a physical transformation um, because I think that the the imagery of a bird, you know, he, he, he became free, you know, he grew wings, he became free, he he managed to to negate both gender and his physical body, you know, and, and the two link in, you know, uh, um, and I, I just thought that it was a nice way to show the transformation in a, in a physical way rather than just a, a mental way. Yes, there's something in all of your stories that animates that perpetual theme in myths and fairy tales, despite how they might have a lesson or a moral that they're supposed to drum into us. A lot of them are still about protagonists yearning to be free despite all of the odds. Geraldine, would you like to talk to us more about the story you've chosen? Okay, my myth is a retelling of some of the variants of Bluebeard, that notorious serial killer of wives, who um, punished his wives basically for their curiosity and um, maybe for overreaching, and he deposited their dismembered bodies in a forbidden room. In different variants of the myth, he's a troll, a sorcerer, a robber, the devil, and even a godmother, in one called uh, the Lassie and her godmother. And I take elements from several versions, including the Norse variant, the old dame and her hen. And the original title of that one translates literally as the hen is tripping in the mountains. And the rooms in my version become characters in their own right, I think. Bluebird and the Forbidden Rooms. O log. Let me begin with an O. O grey stained rooms. O room with a star, the moon, the sun. O room with the blessed trinity, seeping gold. O room with the little girl who looked at the trinity. O blood room of wives and bits of wives. Room with steel doors and fire pit. Steal away. When all rooms are forbidden, all are licit. Part one, backwards. Once on peace of time, three sisters lived with an old dame in the woods, with a single hen for sustenance. The eldest sister was duty, thin as a pin on a Puritan's brooch and stooped with care. Fortune's bag's body, she kept everyone in line and cared for the family hen, which was called Zero Hours, and which she went out to fetch each day, until one day neither of them came home. The second sister was called Done Unto, short, wide and liverish, a continent of regrets. Dumpling, they nicknamed her, and she wore their clothes, overly and underly, taking on whatever she was given. When Sister Duty disappeared, Dununtu took on the task of looking for the hen. Then she too disappeared. The third sister was Devil May Care, and was sweet and wise, forest streetwise, a caution and of no consequence. She was known for her three ounces of wit. She sang this song. Clausura, 
blinket in the dark. I wish, I wish, I wish in vain. I wish I was a first wish. I cried when my sisters left me, their overall airiness key to my survival. I texted, but no answer. The first sister, so cruel, but so usual to me, and like the captive monkey, with flesh grown round its chain, in her absence I forged inner chains, honing my wit. And then, done unto left, and took my breath with her. No goodbyes, but gone looking for our hen. Beguiled, people say, by the monster of the mountains. I will go myself to search for this hen, which is always getting lost. Part two. Your hen is tripping in the mountains. One hen we have. Touched with hen senility, zero hours feels her bearings trickle like grain through holes in her brain. She wanders the forest, the far fields, the foothills of the mountain, looking for food. Devil May Care, DMC, follows the path which first the hen and then her sisters had taken, through turquoise forest back streets. Here, hen, where are you, hen? She imagines Sister Duty pushing herself always a little further because she ought to. The Orta daughter. A bluebird, Twitterer, accompanies her, monitoring her progress. Capture that leaf edge. Where are you, hen? calls bluebird to hen. No response. Past the aspergillus centre, out the other side, the foothills to the mountain. She imagines Dunantu coming this way, moaning softly to herself, her lot, her admirable, miserable lot, to come this way, to find nothing, to go a little further. Near the mountain, so often heard of, never seen, its orange shadow, DMC whispers again, Where are you, hen? She hears singing on the wind, the hills alive with the sound of mountains, then... Your hen is dripping in the mountains, echoes back, becoming an earworm. DMC follows the worm's trail and comes to the vast door of the mountain, slightly ajar. She crosses herself and enters. Rooms hung with crystal and damask, tables set with golden goblets, gold ensuite bathrooms, a red carpet, a gilt stairway. She knows it to be the hall of the mountain troll. Part three, musical interlude. Rooms are us. The rooms croon and commune. There are three lovely lassies from Banyan, Banyan, Banyan. The rooms chorus. Three little maids from school are we. We are your archetypal sisters, but we are not your archetypical sisters. The rooms chant. Hen he uses to lure them. Zero hours and insecure them. He makes her tweet and gag. She is his bait. Hashtag. The rooms crescendo. Come all you young maidens and hear the troll trumpet. Curse one up. One and one and one. 
He plucks them off with plumpest tweet meats. He boasts his mountain is the biggest. He knows their weakness and they enter his own domain. When Sister Duty was hawked, a loner like him, he wheedled her with sweet words, but she rebuffed him and he flamed her, threw her in the fire pit for roasting, had no pity. Then soft dumpling he called ungrateful pig face, cut her up and put her where the old wives are. But now the little quick as a pixie one is here and she tells him he is great and accepts his proposal to be his trolless. He gives her everything. He gives her an egg to carry with her at all times, her female destiny. She passes the test. He explains the forbidden rooms. Part four, fire pit. One day, Devil May Care's bluebird flies too close to the flames and is scorched. DMC cries to Troll, who takes a crock of ointment and smears the bird, which flutters weakly and then re-wings herself. DMC remembers. The day before their wedding, Troll is away on a trip, busy at his baiting. DMC takes the ointment and braves the fire pit, raging behind steel doors. Smears her hands and arms, leans over, harrows the shriek-infested, burnt, flesh-smelling pit. She sees Sister Duty and clutches at parts of her in the flames. The toe bone connected to the heel bone, the heel bone connected to the foot bone. Duty emerges, remembered, and she laughs. DMC has never heard her laugh before. They go together to the blood basin, room of the bits of wives, for Dunantu, their middle sister, and pluck out from the iron stinking vat torn sweetheart limbs which match and smear them. Thigh bone connected to the hip bone, hip bone connected to the backbone, a liver which regenerates. Dunantu emerges, remembered. She roars. They have never heard her roar before. There is one more room to visit. Part five, room with the little girl of the Trinity. Banned from birth from rooms of the body, mind and frisky free-ranging spirit, little girl is trapped in a primeval no. Four times she tried forbidden rooms until she was evicted by her godmother, cast adrift with beauty and a bound tongue. Then a prince, then babies which vanished at birth, her own mouth bloodstained. Oh, careless cannibalism, is it I who have done this? Then exile here to the hall of the mountain troll. Not alone, but silent she lives. With Mother Hare, who has a leveret for leverage. Mother Goat and Mother Charlotte the harlot. All corralled like hens in a single cell. They pray each day. Good-looking God, come down and hear us. Devil May Care, Duty and Dunantu enter the room and continue the almighty smear campaign on the little girl of the Trinity, on the nuns. The girl speaks. The nuns sleep. Now, girls are on the run. Part 6. Sax. Long jazz curves accompany them home. Duty, Dunantu and the little girl of the Trinity, all carried in sacks by the troll. DMC's final trick on the troll's return. With the lure of marriage, he is persuaded to carry sacks of money to the old dame in recompense for her losses and forbidden to look inside. Sweet reversal. He sweats with the weight. 
When he's tempted to look, the sisters and the little girl speak with DMC's voice. I can see you. He's scared. Meaty reversal. Gold seeps constantly from the little girl's fingers from when she saw the Trinity. Devil May Care has made a replica of herself with Troll's stirring stick, the one he uses to curse, and dresses it as a bride, seats it at the window, the destiny egg in its lap, plus a necklace of ovaries salvaged from the blood basin, strung on a rope and slung round the effigy's neck. DMC daubs herself with honey and feathers, leaves the mountain. Strange bird, honey trap. She meets Troll on his way back. He's tired, limping, and asks after his bride. Rising up like a queen of birds, DMC declares, She's at home, waiting to marry you, Troll. But hurry, her pet bluebird has tumbled into the fire pit and you must run and save her and you must lean in very far to pull her out. He smiles weakly. I will save them, bride and bluebird alike. I am the most saving. And he limps on. The End Coda Now Curandera, Queen of Birds, formerly known as Devil May Care, approaches home with her bluebird swooping alongside. Home to the old dame who has welcomed back with wonder, duty who laughs, done unto who roars, the wise arthritic hen, zero hours, now secured, who counsels, and the little girl of the Trinity, who speaks, I am home. The latter keeps a record of all that passes in every room. Every room is allowed and safe, her fingers dribbling enough gold to keep them all in Curandera's queendom. The seven who have survived the monstery, resistors, and troll less, for now. Thank you, Geraldine. That was wonderful. So I'm wondering where you first came across this story. I've always been aware of the myth of Bluebeard, but it wasn't until quite recently that I was um, bedazzled with the number of variants that there are. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to include elements of all of them. I, I couldn't choose. There's a, there's a story from the autobiography of Saint Therese, which is that um, when she was a, a child, her sister offered her a basket of um, dolls and dolls' clothes and asked her to choose, and she said, I choose them all. <laughs> that felt a bit like I wanted everything. And so I included <laughs> rooms from a few different um, variants and uh, characters from different variants. But I was also very struck by um, how much they had in common. But the rooms themselves seem to take over. Um, I find them very resonant. Um, they seem to hold a kind of chaos, but maybe a bounded chaos. There's the, um, the blood basin room, which contains violence, and the fire pit, which could be anger. And I, I think maybe lots of female elements of chaos and, I don't know, anxiety, mental illness transgression but bounded because they're in rooms locked away so I've found the psychological um, resonances very powerful. One of the earliest versions of um, Bluebeard 
is written by Charles Perrault and he gives a very clearly stated moral at the end of the tale which is really surprising because it's curiosity in spite of its appeal often leads to deep regret it's amazing that he pulls that out as the moral to me it seems like the protagonist is rewarded for being bold for protecting herself and um, her family um, and in fact um, to say that the the moral is that curiosity will be punished is is really strange because it's like saying that uh, if the wife if if the protagonist hadn't been curious um, she wouldn't have discovered the uh, that her sisters had been murdered and it just it seems a really strange moral to it seems the the opposite of what I take from the Yes, yeah, sometimes in fairy stories, the moral seems kind of slapped on at the end, yeah. like a band-aid in a slightly arbitrary way. It was almost as an excuse to yes. tell the story. Yeah. Um, so talking of a hastily slapped on ending, I'm afraid that's probably all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us for stories of lovers and trolls fiends and eternal damnation and thank you especially to our guests Stuart Buck, Geraldine Clarkson and Sabrina Mafuz. I've been your host Eleanor Penny and this has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew, our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth and this project is supported by Arts Council England and the good folks at Spread the Word. We have more poetic and mythic treats in store for you next time. And until then, sweet dreams and thanks for listening. <laughs>